Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Please consider supporting Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Hey, this is Nicole calling from Hamilton, and I needed to let everyone know that I really proudly support Vish and creative control. I have for many years. I will for many more, as long as he keeps delivering these amazing interview podcasts. When you hear one of Vish's interviews, you think he's known this guest for years. They're good friends. Uh, But the truth is, he approaches every interview, whether it's sort of up and coming indie artists or established icons or like famous intimidating comedians with uh, a really deep, genuine curiosity, so he's never met this person, and the same really warm uh, candor, as so he's known them forever. I think it really lends to a great chat, no matter who he's talking to, and for that reason, I think you should throw Vish, like, what, a dollar a month? He's got jokes. The jokes make it worth it. Support Creative Control on Patreon. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash Control today. I'm Visha's wife, and remember, when you name a dog Janet or Timothy, you are dragging humanity down just a little bit. Kevin Morby is a multi-talented, multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, and singer based in his hometown of Kansas City, Kansas. Having lived in larger American cities like New York and Los Angeles over the years, Morby settled back in Kansas City in 2017, where he's continued to create his idiosyncratic, folk-infused rock and roll music. His new album is a haunting one called Sundowner and is widely available as of October 16th, 2020, via Dead Oceans. Kevin and I connected recently for a conversation about his move home, American politics, and his perspective on the current state of his country's psyche, perceptions of the American Midwest, farming, and progress, finding his own voice and being compared to other singers, David Berman and Nina Simone, Native American and frontier culture, reflection and concepts of home, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control and Massey Hall's concert film series live at masseyhall.com where you can stream dozens of 30-minute films for free, including performances by past podcast guests like Elliot Brood, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 572nd episode of Creative Control, featuring the thoughtful and prolific Kevin Morby with your host, me, Vish Khanna.
brother They killed you dead I know sister Now I live in your head Oh brother But they put you in a hole Just my body sister They never touched my soul Oh brother We should turn back Oh no sister You know we can't do that And the wheels on the bus go bum 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 Ba bum 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 Hi Kevin, how's it going? Good. Hello Vish. Thank you for having me. I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Oh, well, that's very sweet. I didn't know that. I'm a huge fan of your music. How do, how in the heck have you heard about my lowly podcast? First I think of the all. first nice. interview I heard was the your, your David Berman interview. Ah, um, yes. And then from there I've I've gone on to listen. You've interviewed some of my friends, Doc Dunn. Um Yeah. Meg Remy and then uh and then I'm a big Bill Callahan fan, so I've listened to your your Bill interviews as well. And I oh, thoroughly enjoyed sweet. them all. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you. Well, it's a thrill to have you on the show as well. Uh, first of all, where in the world are you today? I am in Kansas City here in my little back studio shed. Um, Kansas City, Kansas, where where I live, and I've spent quarantine. You're, are you uh, under orders, or are you just, you're just in self-isolation for safety? Just self-isolation for safety. Okay. Okay. You're okay. You've, been, you've yeah, been all right. Doing good, okay. and I know it. Now, my understanding is you are from Kansas City originally, is that correct? I am. Well, I was born in Texas, and then we uh, kind of hopped around the Midwest a bunch, um, spent part of my childhood in Detroit, and then Tulsa, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, and then uh, we finally landed in Kansas City, which is where I spent my formative years before leaving when I was 18. Wow, you almost lived the entire lyrics of Route 66. That's amazing. <laughs> you lived in... Almost all the places. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you you were in Los Angeles uh, until recently. When did you move from Los Angeles? I moved um, back from L.A. Um, in 2017. And so in between being 18 and 32, I lived in uh, I lived in um, New York for seven years, L.A. for four or five years, and then I, here a couple years ago. Okay, so what prompted the move home? Again, it's hard to figure out what is your home. <laughs> town but what prompted the move from LA bustling uh you know music epicenter or arts and culture epicenter to Kansas City which i assume is not that slower <laughs> i i'm guessing uh what prompted the move um a couple different things just the, the stars were sort of aligned i was coming out of a relationship that was sort of synonymous with LA and it felt like a good time to get out and um you know take some space from that city and that situation and you know, I, I wouldn't have ever really thought that I would have chosen to move back here, but I, I, I bought a house here in 2015 and my good friend was living in it and he had to move out for a few different reasons. So I ended up sort of thinking I'd just come back here to kind of tend to my house and then take off, but uh, I just stayed. Oh, cool. So how has it been back? I mean, again, a huge sort of shift in kind of, uh, I mean, climate in every sense of the word. I mean, you're you escape California just as things seem to be getting scarier there in terms of mm. you know climate change and uh, and and I guess I mean Kansas City is not you're not going to escape the social unrest in Kansas City uh, but uh, yeah as an American how are you feeling right now I guess that's my that's my question we Canadians puzzle over <laughs> what's going on down there and uh, I think a lot of the world is uh, as we're speaking still very chaotic. In your country, how are you feeling about things as an American? I'm feeling pretty, you know, uh, terrified and confused. I think, you know, a lot of it hinges on what's going to happen here in about a month in November. So it's this weird, I don't know, I just feel like it's this weird purgatory right now where my psyche can see it going so many different ways and it seems like all options are on the table. So on one hand, I think, you know, and come November 3rd, it's going to be a great situation, you know, uh, the better situation will come out of it. But at the same time, I think, you know, the ultimate worst situation could just as easily come out of it. I think just yeah. dealing with a lot of PTSD from 2016 and really not being able to tell up from down with how crazy everything's gotten. And it's interesting being back in middle America through this time because, you know, I was certainly in some sort of a bubble in Brooklyn and Los Angeles, 
and I'd sort of forgotten what middle America feels like. But I will say I'm actually pretty surprised being back with how, you know, uh, many Biden signs and Black Lives Matter signs I'm, I'm actually seeing um, in the area. So I'm taking that as a, a good sign. I just did a, a drive through. I, I drove to Denver, which is this l- sort of long, sprawling um, drive. It's about nine hours. And there's a lot of these sort of fantastical uh, homemade Trump signs on the side of the road that are pretty discouraging because you think of, uh, I don't know, just what people are willing to go through to promote the man. But I will say I saw one Black Lives Matter um, uh, sign outside of a small town, and I took that as a huge success. And so, I don't know, I'm hoping for the best. I, I'm, I'm definitely pretty terrified, though, at the moment. It's been a crazy year. Do you have any perspective on, and you're not on the show because you're a political analyst or a historian necessarily, but as a citizen of that country, what's your perspective on how we got here? Uh, And I say we because we're all, uh, because it's America, we all kind of feel the effects, uh, whether it's economically, socially, you're very, as a country, very influential. So we're all kind of invested in this. Like I, I, I make a joke about Canadians being kind of disconnected but we're right above you (laughs) yeah yeah. and if we feel connected on many levels what is your perspective on how we got to this point where this person is president is behaving in such a way and not only is it not completely rejected many people align with him like how do you feel like because for me i would be afraid frankly as a canadian because i'm a wuss to go into the States right now, I would just feel odd. Like, sure. who's around the corner? What are people thinking? I sure. look, you know, I'm a person of color. What would that be like? Sure. And I, you feel that everywhere. But from your perspective, how, God damn it, Kevin, how did we get here? What happened? Well, um, <laughs> you know, I think uh, <laughs> the seed of being an American is, is it's very individualistic. You know, I think it's people, it's really fight for yourself. It's kind of ingrained in you. And there used to be some weird sense of, pride that I had being an American, you know, even through the Bush era and I was much younger then, but you know, I, I, I wasn't a fan of Bush and I, you know, I rejected that, that whole presidency, um, in my ways as a, a young kid. But I remember going to Europe for the first time while Bush was still in office and, you know, it was just this sort of thing where America seemed incredibly fucked up, but you could still wrap your head around it. You know, your, your enemy still made sense. And then obviously what I think we've seen with Trump is it no longer makes sense. And reality is completely shattered. And I, you know, I can't help but just think of things like Batman or Star Wars. You know, it's it's just taken things to this weird, like, you know, comic book level of our our president just wants to watch the world burn, or at least it seems like that to me. And so it's hard to make sense of that. You know, I I think of the bat, you know, Batman battling the Joker, and it's it's hard to figure out your enemy My, when that's, you know that's Michael Caine's. Michael Caine's sentiment and when they're in that bunker. Yes, exactly. Uh, in, in the Dark Knight Rises, I believe. No, the Dark Knight. The Dark Knight. Dark Knight. That's yeah. right. He says, he says some people just want to watch the world burn. Exactly. And I like that we're talking about this because I don't know about you, but since the pandemic, I have watched the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy like 15 times. Oh, I can't it's stop great. it. It's so it good. It feels very fitting. It feels very and, fitting. Uh, oddly fitting and dark and I got to stop. I feel like way too connected <laughs> to it, but... Sorry, yeah, that is how he seems like a nihilist. Sure. He doesn't seem to rhyme nor reason, your president, to what anything he does. Yeah. I and think, so, you know, there's a scary thing to someone who, you know, there's someone who can lose a fight, but they don't lose if they want to get beat up or something like that, you know? It, mm-hmm. And that's kind of how, you know, he feels to me. It's, 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 it, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, to, um, to take down a psychopath, I guess, you know, it, cause you don't, it's hard. And, you know, and then I think of star Wars because you don't want to get on their level. You don't want to go over to the dark side. You know, you want to maintain yeah. your, your humanity and, um, you know, your, your moral center. But so it's very interesting, but you know, I think being an American and like, especially having grown up in the Midwest and grown up in a conservative household, you know, things are pretty, it, it's about the individual and it's things that you don't notice in the same way that I didn't fully, I wasn't fully aware of my white privilege as a, as a guy, you know, until I got a little bit older and, um, I was able to gain perspective and see like how privileged I, I am to have that vantage point and how disadvantaged some people are who, who aren't in that situation. Um, it's like that with Americans, you know, where I think at a certain point, like a great example would be something like the, you know, what's happening with the Proud Boys or with the, the Boogaloo and these people who are showing up, um, these, these militia, you know, who are showing up to these protests. And they were here in Kansas City with their automatic weapons. And, you know, I think of those people 
they're no different than someone like Jesse James that we would have romanticized and read about and been taught about in school. And I think there's just this, um, this seed that's implanted in you as a, a, a young American to just sort of, to be this rogue cowboy, you know, it's just like this open plains, uh, you're a cowboy and you can kind of kill anyone if you, if you see fit yeah. mentality. And sometimes that mentality, you know, like I, I equate that to why such good art comes out, you know, because someone like Lou Reed or, uh, you know, someone like Bob Dylan or Towns Van Zandt or, you know, they, they were against the grain and they just did their thing and they were stubborn in their ways. And so I see that mentality, that sort of rogue cowboy mentality lead to good things, but then certainly a lot of bad things. And I think we're, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been thinking about the Jesse James thing a lot because if Jesse James were alive today, as much as we like to romanticize him in film and otherwise he would, he would probably be a piece of shit that, you know, would be showing up <laughs> at these. I think uh, we, we all like vigilantes when they are uh, acting in our interest or within yes. our moral code. But when they start to go awry or what have you, yeah, that's when things get questionable. Yeah, it is a weird, weird time. Is Kansas considered a flyover state? Is that yeah, big something time. that big time, right? Yeah. So you mentioned you grew up in a conservative household. Uh, I wonder if you can, and then we were talking about this moment and your work today. How is your upbringing? And, because you don't come across to me as a conservative in any way in your work. I mean, for what that's worth, uh, and, and, and just based on what you just said, how did your upbringing kind of impact you as an artist? Because I know that sometimes if you're raised one way, uh, you deprogram yourself to go the opposite yeah. way. Yeah. And if you're lucky, you can do that if, if things aren't good. But yeah, how did your upbringing kind of inspire and influence you in your in your work, would you say? You know, I th- yeah, I think you just, you know, said it completely perfect, but it's, uh, you know, perhaps had I been raised by, you know, Hell's Angels or something, I would have, uh, would have, I'd be a banker now or something. But, um, you know, my parents are conservative, but they're, they're still, you know, open minded at the end of the day. And, um, but I certainly sort of railed against the suburban life that I was brought up in. And, you know, I dropped out of high school when I was 17. And, um, I really just, you know, I didn't agree with authority or institutions and, yeah, I sort of railed against what I was I was told I needed to to be doing. So that was a big part of it. And again, sort of in that rogue nature, you know, I could look at so many of my heroes before me who did similar things. And I really just sort of followed my own path and got really into, you know, punk music and reading when I was in high school. And yeah, just kind of took off with that. Yeah. So I, I think that's a, a, a big part of it. And But, you know, at the same turn, it's, again, it's been so interesting with you know, growing up in a conservative household and my parents both grew up very poor and they grew up in, you know, Nebraska and Kansas and Kentucky and they grew up, you know, my dad worked on a ranch from the time he was really young. They're very hardworking, very good people. And I love my parents yeah. very much. We're very close. And so, you know, I, in my mind, in my life and everything that I did, everyone was conservative, you know, so to, to not be conservative, um, especially at a young age was a, was a pretty big deal. And I quickly found other friends of mine who, you know, were, uh, getting into the sorts of things I was getting into. But then when I moved to places like New York and then later to LA, but especially New York when I was still pretty young and I made friends who, you know, had uh, liberal parents, it blew my mind. You know, I didn't know such a thing could exist. And as nice as that was, and you know, as much as I love some of those people, there is something about being back. I really like the idea of, you know, I'm getting into this idea of Americans and I, I've been seeing this happen more with the pandemic, people sort of going back to where they're from and, I think, you know, America could really use that creative people, not, you know, all being in sort of the hubs of the, the biggest, most liberal cities and kind of spreading back out. And, you know, I think um, distributing those ideas across the country is a is a good thing. Well, you moved to escape something. You, I think you moved away from where you're from to escape a version of yourself a little bit yeah. and, and also just to explore. But you have a song on your new record that stuck out for me. It's called Don't Underestimate Midwest American Sun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I feel like that's actually, yeah, I'm not going to speculate. Where did that notion come from? As someone who is now, as you say, moved from a metropolis to a flyover state, um, a place that most people don't really consider in Sure. You know, cultural terms, sociopolitical terms, we, they're called flyover states for crying out loud. 
which I think the subtext is people are avoiding them, sure. <laughs> <laughs> avoiding going there. I don't exactly know the nature of that term, but I assume that's kind of what it means. So what does that song mean? What is, is it a call to arms? Is it a reminder? Is it something you're singing to yourself as like, I'm home. There's nothing wrong with this place. Do you know what I mean? Can you sure. talk about that song? Sure, yeah. You know, that song's a little twofold because uh, at one point it's a snapshot of my girlfriend Katie and I, who she's from Alabama, so we grew up in like a, sim- a similar environment, but she was living in Philadelphia for a long time and she's a musician as well. She has a band called Waxahachie. And I was in LA and she was in Philly and then I decided to move back home and she kind of uh, moved in with me pretty quickly. And, you know, this is at a time when we could tour and we were constantly out on the road. And um, but we'd have these sort of like beautiful two week uh, honeymoon period beginning of a relationship, you know, together um, here in the Midwest. And, you know, we're just kind of in the weird anonymous uh, Kansas suburb that I live in and would have these kind of wonderful times together where we're almost like children. You know, we were like uh, biking around and and just kind of being little kids, but then we'd, you know, sort of be torn apart and have to go back out on the road. So it's about that, but to the backdrop of the Midwest and yeah, it's certainly wanting to just, just bring up the Midwest, you know, and, and put, put that title in a song and sort of put it in front of people's faces. And because again, I, I don't know. I just think that I'm really, I'm really happy to be back here and I didn't expect to be, you know, like I said, I thought I'd be here for a short time and then leave again. And you're right. When you're young, you want to escape a version of yourself and you, or perhaps you see a version of yourself down the road and you don't want to be that person. So you get out. And I'm so glad I left and, you know, I was able to make a name for myself, but in its ways, you know, I went out and, you know, I got into this whole music thing and it's almost like, uh, these bubbles started to feel claustrophobic, you know, just in and of themselves. Like I, I felt like I needed to get away from the music industry now that I was so deep in it. It's become my career and I'm touring all the time and the Midwest just provided this sort of soft landing for me. And I don't know, I was able to see it, you know, it's beauty here is not as immediate as like the bright lights of New York or, you know, the coast of uh, Los Angeles or something like a a beach in Malibu or something. But um, I was able to sort of to, to, to see it, you know, upon coming back and really appreciate it. And almost in this, like I took off, you know, my foggy goggles or something. And I was like, wow, I think this was here the whole time. I just, <laughs> I couldn't see it. And, you know, and I needed to do these other things to be able to see it. But yeah, it's also a call to just this sort of American beauty that, that take that I feel like we're losing, you know, because it's, it's my play on words with that song is like changing, you know, son S O N to S U N and, and, you know, daughters to water. I'm, I'm speaking about both and just this sort of appreciation for, the natural beauty that comes with the Midwest. And, you know, in terms of America, it's the one place right now that it's, it seems a little safe from natural disaster, you know, save a tornado here and there, but it does seem like this sort of sturdy part of the country right now. And Mm. I don't know, just an appreciation of all that, I suppose. I, we just moved uh, this year from Ontario to Alberta. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm Midwest, aren't I? I think I must be Midwest. Yeah, you must just be right above. (laughs) I'm right above, not too far uh, away from you in in a sense. And uh, it is different, isn't it? It's a different mentality. Uh, I can't yet quite put my finger on it because almost as soon as we got here, we couldn't leave our homes. What are some misperceptions of the Midwest? You kind of spoke to some of this uh, as we've been talking, but like, are there dumb, particularly (laughs) dumb misperceptions of Kansas City, of of the Midwest that you can address and say, guys, come on, you're idiots. What are you doing? Why do you think this? Is there anything that comes to mind? <laughs> um, you know, I think one thing I've really learned is that there's there's racist people everywhere. You know, there's homophobic people everywhere. There's misogynist people everywhere. Growing up in the Midwest, I thought maybe it was a little bit more centered to, the, to this part of the country. And maybe it is, but at the same time, I do think those people... Um, are everywhere. And I think I, you know, learned that moving around, but I don't, you know, I I think a lot of people in the Midwest haven't left is a thing, you know? And I think they haven't had the chance to be around more culture. I, I, you know, I don't know. I I think there, there certainly are a lot of stereotypes, you know, uh, people, there's like a passive, uh, aggressive uh, kindness that happens here where, you know, someone can kind of like rear end you or something, and then you'll both be awfully nice about it. Um, you know, things like that (laughs) certainly do uh, are stereotypes for a reason. You know, I think people think of like white bread here, like just sort of white bread sandwiches. And well, what about the whole rural? I hate using the word urban or even rural. These terms are sort of weird, but there's this whole thing that like the rural vote and it's not a thing. It's real. I think the rural vote tends to skew 
conservative mm-hmm. and you know tends to resist progress uh i for, like you grew up in a conservative home was it a a farm situation for you an agrarian situation you said your parents weren't uh, so well off but did you grow up in that kind of environment like agriculture or anything like that no so that was all my my parents grew up in that environment and then my my dad worked uh, oh they did okay yeah, yeah. But by the time yeah. I grew up in a very suburban environment, and so okay. um, my parents really like did well for themselves. You know, they my dad went to college. They met in college. My mom didn't graduate college, but you know, she ended up even making more money than my dad did, and um, they did really well. You know, like middle class to upper middle class upbringing, and um, they did very well for themselves, especially given where they came from. Um, yeah. So me and my sister had a completely different upbringing than they did. You know, and okay. Um, Okay. Yeah, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Like, you're living in Kansas. We think of it, it is, I think, a, a place of where agriculture is one of the main sure. industries, sure. or hopefully it still is. And I don't really get, because I have relatives that have farms Yeah. Uh, and we in, in Alberta here, and we go and we ride horses. And, and if it gets into a like, kind of political dialogue, you're like, oh. Right, right. Yeah, they yeah. really think this. And I can't, do you have a sense of that? As a personality type, like why is it that as a farmer doing a very ancient practice, mm-hmm. I guess, like it's an old practice. Maybe I, I wonder if it's that vocationally I'm doing this thing that's super old. So I don't really want to think about it changing sure, uh, or, sure. or, or change generally because that's going to psychologically that impacts what I'm doing. Do you have any thoughts on this? Like I just don't get it yeah. why the rural vote would go particularly with this president, with the tariffs and everything else. Sorry, mm-hmm. this is way too sociopolitical, but I just, I, I like when I talk to people like you. No, I right love there, it. You're in the heartland. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I mean, <laughs> I think, it, and to me, my whole mission statement with Trump has always been like, I don't understand how the rural, you know, uh, quiet majority of uh, this country, why they confide in or believe, a, you know, a billionaire from Manhattan. It makes no sense to me. You know, it makes absolutely exactly. no sense to yeah. me. But I find, you know, Republicans are way more stoic in their policies. Like, I think they'll they'll latch on to one thing. The biggest things being, you know, something like gay marriage or abortion, you know, and they'll just never move from that. So I, I find a lot of people, they don't like Trump, but, you know, they they they're 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 pro-life. So they're just going to stick with that vote no matter what. And. You know, that to me makes no sense because I I just feel like some moral center. How can you vote for some horrible person? And also, I don't relate to people who are pro-life. But, um, yeah, you know, I... I, I don't know. You know, we were filming this music video recently and we were out in Western Kansas and um, it's outside of this small town called Wakanini, Kansas. And everyone, you know, like their sheriff pulled up and was like, what are you guys doing? And we told him we're making a music video. He was very nice about it. And then everyone in the town started pulling over right outside this tiny little town. And, you know, the fear of being, you know, like these indie rocker, like, you know, cool guys from the city and cool guys and girls from the city is like, you know, they're going to, these people are going to hate you, but these people were very kind to us. But then there was one guy at the end who pulled over and, you know, he said, where are you guys from? And we told him Kansas city, he got really upset and said, Oh, you know, all those protests happening right, right now, you know, those people don't have jobs. They've never worked a day in their life. And I was talking to my, my friend, Johnny, who's, um, directing the video. And, you know, I think that guy is just alone. You know, I think that guy is just upset and completely alone and probably has, you know, maybe this is going too deep into it, but I feel like a lot of people who spend that much time alone out in solitude and isolation might have some undiagnosed, you know, mental health situation or depression. And he was so upset, but I really had the sense that if this guy, you know, that you could, you could turn him in an hour conversation or something, you know, I, I was a big fan of Andy mm-hmm. Bourdain and I remember, he went on the Mark Maron's podcast and he did a great mm-hmm. interview where Mark Maron asked him, how do you, you know, how do you go all over the world, but especially throughout the United States and sit down with some people who are as conservative as they are? And how, how do you find middle ground with them? And Anthony Bourdain explains, you know, like that's the beautiful thing about food is it's, it's essential. Everyone needs it. Everyone can find common ground in food. And he was saying, you know, and so over food, food is this sort of platform. You can, you can get into other conversations with ease and, he was saying, you know, I can sit down with a rural rancher in Montana who could, you know, hate Obama. But by the end of the conversation, I could we could agree that Michelle Obama seems pretty great, you know, and mm. finding that common ground with people. And I think, 
you know, and not that it's anyone's duty to to go hang out with people for hours on end and try to get them to think how you think. But I do think a lot of people, it, it would, you know, they're just disenfranchised and they're lonely. I think that's what you see, especially with people who, who yeah, live out in, in sort of this isolation. And um, I don't know. It's a val- I, yeah, it's I think a totally like that guy, point. I think he just wanted someone to talk to. And he saw a group of people on the side of the road and he stopped to talk and he got angry and he can he can chew on that for a while. You know, he can think about that for a while, but I, I just, I just think there's this weird inherent American loneliness and fear that is beneath everything. And people don't know how to deal with it. And it's sometimes I do think I'm like, you know, if I, if I hadn't found music, you know, and I think that of a lot of rock stars, like not that I'm a rock star, but you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes you see people like, I don't know, like the, the red hot chili peppers or something, or like some, you know, Kurt Cobain, like what would Kurt Cobain have been like without his talent? You know, he could have been a complete, you know, fuck up. And, um, he grew up in rural America and it's, you see how people go wrong, how they take these left turns just because there's nothing for them. And yeah, I don't know. I think people are just lonely. I, I think you've really touched on something there that I hadn't really contemplated in terms of people feeling, I mean, I do think most hatred is rooted in personal pain and you're also we're also in a moment where one of the the um I hate to use the word ingenious uh, in in uh, in association with your president but one of the things he's done well is he's uh, observed how much conservatism tends to project mm-hmm. so uh that's his big thing whatever basically whatever he accuses people of doing he has done yes uh, or is doing and so one of the things that I think you're talking about when you're talking about people who feel isolated and disenfranchised is I'm lonely. I'm angry. I'm in pain. I want you to feel that. Absolutely. I want everyone else to feel the same feelings of despair and rage that I have. Absolutely. That's, is that where you're coming from? Like I just hadn't really thought of it that way, but that seems to make sense. 100%. And that's where it goes back to the, you know, Heath Ledger's Joker in the dark Knight, where I just feel it's, um, I, yeah, it's 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 loneliness and it's it's rage and it's it's um it's people who you know it's the type of people who wouldn't you know and I don't want to like uh you know pigeonhole a, a, a you know a type of person necessarily but I I don't yeah I just think it's people get lonely and you know though I grew up in a very suburban environment a lot of my family my extended family still were out on the farms and you know I would I could be close to that sort of character and um it's fear of the unknown. It's fear of so many things, but I think it's all rooted in fear and it's, it's not wanting to, you know, it's not wanting to, to, to face that or not knowing how to face that or even knowing that it's possible to face something like that and to, yeah. to maybe mentally work it out and then to be able to see the other side and, and get along with the other side, you know? And I also do, you know, from these people's perspective, sometimes I can see like the elite liberals, you know, like these people who live in New York city and, um, you know, think they're better than me. I can see how people would think that, which once again baffles me to why they would then want to follow someone like Donald Trump, who is exactly, you know, an elite, uh, you know, Manhattanite. But I, I see where people's fear comes from, but it's just, it's unfounded. And yeah, I think there's just a true fear of the unknown here. And again, I think yeah. it goes back to this sort of individual. I think this farmer who was angry at us. Um, and again, you know, the, the, Ninety percent of these people in Wakanina, Kansas, were very wonderful, and they they were being very kind, and they were farmers themselves, you know, and perhaps their life just you know went a different way than this one particular farmer's. But he, um, I just think he he was just alone and scared. That's that's what I got from yeah, him. yeah, Cause yeah. I why agree. else would you act like that? <laughs> yeah, no, I there's there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of stuff we're gonna have to deal with for decades, I think, based on everything that's been going on recently, for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about how all of this is informing either you, either writing you've done recently or the work on this wonderful new record, Sundowners. Is it informing it? Like these are very vivid tales. I feel like there's a lot of going out and being alone kind of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about that? How does this current climate inform you as an artist right now? I, you know, I, I, I think I've always written about whatever's happening and with, you know, current events and, and what's going on around me. So it's inevitably going to make its way into my songs in some way, shape or form, whether it be lyrically or, you know, sometimes sonically, I don't know, maybe the song has an angry energy to it because, of, you know, I read too much of the news that day that I happened to write a song. But I think with this one in particular, again, it's, 
it's just wanting to frame a place like the Midwest, which is a, you know, a, a largely conservative, you know, Kansas is a red state frame it in a way of like, you know, it, it doesn't have to be so bad. And there's a lot of artists who, who've, you know, done this similar thing, you know, someone like Jason Isbell, you know, who's from Alabama, but he, he's outspoken about his political beliefs. And I think there's just this way of, of sort of reframing, like, I know this has this connotation and I know that, um, you know, there's this undertone to this place, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, I'm from here and I know, I know other people from here who, who have similar beliefs. And so there's some of that going on and yeah, and at the same time, just the uh, sort of inherent, like dealing with the place that you grew up in and all that comes with that, which, you know, I think anyone can relate to. It's it's always a strange sensation. But my, my real thing with this record and, and wanting to honor the fact that I was making my sort of first quote unquote Midwestern record was trying to see it in a new way, you know, not trying to come back to it with these, you know, preconceived notions that I had as a kid and just trying to see it in a new light and see see it for, you know, how it can be beautiful. It's interesting to me, like this record starts off with a song called Valley. Mm-hmm. And it really reminded me a lot of Nashville Skyline, like Bob Dylan's mm-hmm. Nashville Skyline. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. You absolutely. Where I'm coming from. And it, and, and also just, he has a song called in the Valley below. And I was like, Oh, there's, are you, are you a Dylan? I'm a, sorry, just so it's clear. And I know this is maybe a cliche. Who cares at this point? Sure. But I'm like a huge Bob Dylan fan, so I'm my antenna goes up when I feel like I'm hearing from a fellow sure, Dylan sure, sure. fan. Are you a big Dylan fan? I'm a big Dylan fan for sure. I mean, I have you know, and I'm, I'm, there's a lot of people out there, you know, who like to say, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, he's popular. He's well known. He's well, uh, known. yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a huge <laughs> Dylan fan. I always have been. I've always sort of worn that influence on my sleeve, and yeah, I'm sure you can find uh, plenty of petty blogs out there that are calling me a Dylan ripoff or. You know, oh, want to be. oh, I didn't realize that. Well, that's not fair. Who isn't a Dylan ripoff? We're all. Hey, I'm on board. Dylan. I'm on board. I, you know, I take it. It's for me. It's it's funny because it's, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's a Leonard Cohen ripoff or it's a Bob Dylan ripoff or it's a Towns Van Zandt ripoff or it's a Lou Reed ripoff. And, and anytime I hear that, I'm like, you got it. Like, exactly. Um, right. So these people are big for you. They're big influences and they're going to come out. Yes, somehow. absolutely. And, and they're the people I always yeah. say they're the people who taught me to sing. So to answer your question, yes, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. And there was definitely, you know, I, I wrote this record around the time I just turned 30 and I, I don't know, I couldn't help but notice it was just that time in my life where I was moving to a more rural place and maybe growing a little facial hair. And, you know, <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, this, this actually, you know, this is the, this is the timeline of songwriters, I guess. Um, I'm out of the city and I'm not this clean shaven, you know, sidewalk. Well, you, it's funny that you said they taught you to sing. Because I think they're all great singers, uh, distinctive singers. Uh, but some would argue that, you know, Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, Leonard Cohen. Uh, and I disagree with this vehemently. I think having your own voice, distinctive voice, and using it as best you can. Uh, first of all, I think Bob Dylan's a wonderful singer. And uh, throughout his career, I think he's hit, he's had all these different voices, mm-hmm. proven he can sing tunefully. But some people will home in on that particularly his 80s period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but and Leonard Cohen too, like he's famously said like it's incredible that someone like me can have a career as a singer. Like he's very self-effacing <laughs> about it. And Lou Reed also like kind yeah. of spoken word, you know, using his voice, but I think very strong. So, was does that say something to you, about you and your I don't know, perception of your own voice? When you say these are your singing heroes, uh is it because they prove that anyone could kind of sing and, and yeah. find their own voice is that yeah, the idea absolutely maybe to go you know full circle to what we we're talking about earlier i think someone like bob dylan when i discovered him and i was 14 or 15 years old I, I thought to myself like here's a guy from the midwest who it's just him and a guitar and there seems to be no rules when he's he's playing his songs you know he hangs on some chords longer than the other ones his voice is nasally and he's just kind of shouting he doesn't seem to really know how to play the harmonica he's just blowing into it really hard but it's really working and it's really clicking. He's got this confidence. And that's something that I certainly as a, you know, a young kid in the Midwest really spoke to me. And it was, um, one of those moments where a record or, you know, a, an idol just really breaks your world wide open and growing up in a conservative household and going to, you know, certain types of schools where, you know, I, it was probably never in the conversation that someone could actually be a professional musician. And then you hear something like that and it changes your life forever. But 
Yeah, you know, I always go back to that Silver Jews line, that David Berman line, all my favorite singers couldn't sing. And I yeah. I, I love that so much, and I think of that constantly. But I really do think, because there's so many trained singers who, who go nowhere, you know? And, I mean, obviously there's a lot of people with really magnificent voices, but I think the common ground in someone like Lou Reed and then uh, someone who, you know, like Jeff Buckley or something who has, like, a operatic trained voice... But there's still a lot of character in it. So I think the, the common yeah. ground in the Venn diagram is that there's got to be character. Like, um, regardless, there's people who don't know how to sing and there's no character in it. And there's people who, and I, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, so I think, you know, on a good day when I think of my voice, um, it's, I, I know how to use my voice in a way that I, I, I can pull it off. And, and that's where I feel like I really relate to, you know, uh, all the singers that I just mentioned. Yeah, I think it's a confidence thing too, and I I think with all those people, and it's funny because Nina Simone is somebody who actually has an incredible voice, but I think there's so much character in it, and she can go from like this sort of cool talk singing thing to you know yeah. really going for it. But I think listening to her really helped me sing in the beginning parts of my career of you know just just sort of having confidence and really owning your voice, and I think that's that's so much a part of it. I think when we criticize people for singing, we're criticizing the the audacity that they're demonstrating more than anything. Like, you think you can sing? Because like, like when I, if you try to sing certain songs by the people we've talked about, David Berman included, yeah. Uh, sometimes as a, I sing bedtime stories to my kids, uh, whom the listeners didn't hear this, but you heard it, Kevin. They're loud. My children can scream and yell, and it's something else. And but I sing. Uh, we sing a lot in the house. And um, I try to sing Silver Juice songs or David songs because they mean a lot to me. I have some trouble with it. Like, it's weird. I can't, sure. I'm like, he's not, it's just, he has like a, is it a baritone? Like, he's just got a tone yeah. that I, when you <laughs> sing someone's song, you invariably will mimic them or yeah. try to, right? Yeah. And eventually, if you're confident enough, you'll just be like, no, I'm not going to sing it like Johnny Cash. I'll just sing it like I can sing it. Like, I'm doing my best Johnny Cash here at bedtime or David Berman or the Beatles or whatever. But it's if someone were to say, like, here's a recording of what you sounded like, that doesn't sound like those people at all. (laughs) That just sounds like me. But anyway, some of these so-called bad singers, they can really sing, can't they? Like, they they are hard to mimic, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing. And it's using... It's using what you've got. And I think there's some sort of mastery. It's like David Berman can sing like David Berman better than anyone can sing like David Berman, you know? And I think there's some, like, yeah, I think there's just some sort of, uh, you just, you're comfortable with your instrument and you know how to use it. And and, and it either strikes a chord with people or it doesn't. And I think that's a, it's a wonderful thing, but. Well, you have, you have the same thing. I think like, I remember distinctly being a teenager and hearing David's voice and, you know, now, uh, over the years, we've all talked about lyrics yeah. with David as a writer. But I didn't have a lyric sheet, probably, for the first Silver Juice thing I ever heard. Sure. I don't think. Maybe I did. Actually, yeah, there probably was one. But I was more like, this guy's voice spoke to me. Sure. And then it the sounds like he's speaking he to you. Exactly. To it sounds like he's in your ear addressing yeah. you. And, and so, I've been playing your Sundowners record in the house... And as soon as you start singing Valley, everyone stops talking uh, mm. in my family. Sorry, we're in isolation, so we talk a lot. We don't, <laughs> there's no, no, there's no end to the talking, but I've played every, I've noticed it because I play music in the house sometimes and I've got your record so far as a digital download on the old uh, television. <laughs> and so it blasts through the living room and I tell you, like your voice comes on and everyone stops and oh, they wow. look at the TV so you've got, I think you've got something, I'm sorry, I don't mean, I'm not trying to gush here, but you've got that too. There's a certain power and character in your voice and your phrasing that I think is captivating and it's all over this record. Uh, so I just, I'm only stopping our conversation to praise you, to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to ask you to recognize that. Do you recognize that in yourself, that you've come to a point where your, your voice is your own, so to speak? Yeah, I do. I, I, I do. And thank you very much. It's very flattering. I, yeah. um, it is one of those things, you know, I have a lot of friends, like my friend um, Eric Johnson, who's in a band called Fruit Bats, or my friend Robin Pecknold, who's, you know, band is Fleet Foxes. Like, those are two people who, again, a lot of character, but then at the same time, they can really sing. Like, you know, they I, they would be, uh, they could get up with anyone and, and do harmonies, and I don't have that confidence, you know, but I do have yeah. the confidence that I could lead. 
I could lead something and then people could sing to me. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't have like a, a collegiately good voice or so, if that makes sense, but, but yeah. I do know how to use what I have and I, I feel confident in that. And I'm, and I, sometimes I like that it's limited, you know, like, or, you know, all the time I like that it's limited to be honest. Like I, I like knowing that I have this thing that is uniquely mine, um, that I can use to, you know, I can only use in, in my sort of way. Yeah. What about the the sound of this record? I know that it came about in a kind of an interesting way in terms of the demos you made on a four track. My is that, that's my understanding, and then you took it to a studio, and it's 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 mostly you, right? You played most of the stuff on this record. Yeah, yeah, and you know, this was done far different than any record I've made before. Usually, I symbol some sort of band, or it's my touring band at the time, and we're really tour tight, so we'll go into the studio, but. With this one and, you know, uh, being in my own sort of isolation um, here in Kansas two years before, we all had to go into isolation. But I, I sort of bought a four track. I had a four track as a, a high school, you know, when I was in high school and I never really messed with them ever again. I actually smashed this four track that I had um, out of frustration <laughs> and not being able to know how to use it when I was like 17. And then I moved away and I never tried to, to four track ever again. So when I came back, I feel like there was some part of me. One, I just needed a hobby in some way to like, you know, pass the time. But two... I, you know, I, I wanted to overcome this four track. And Why did you hate the four track? Why did you smash a four track? What does that say about you? <laughs> Machine guess, destroying man. I, I have like a long history of breaking inanimate objects, uh, which is uh, <laughs> when they, when they don't go my way, when I can't figure something out. And, um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it, yeah, it just says that that's, that's where my anger goes sometimes. That's where my anger goes. Um, At least they're inanimate objects. So that's better than the alternative. Yeah, that's, that's good. I guess. Very true. It's very true. Yeah. I've broken stereos over the years and, uh, I would think if you're using, if you're destroying a machine that's capturing you, you're mad at yourself a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's absolutely. not what I want. That's not who I want to be. That's not what I want captured. Absolutely. Right? Just kind of like what you were saying. I'm sure there's plenty of things where I was, I was going into that machine trying to sound like something else and whatever came out was probably horrifying. <laughs> so I broke it. But, um, so I, I was back here. I was like, you know what? I've made a name for myself. I'm a professional musician. I have to be able to work a four track. I'm 30 years old. And so yeah. I got a new four track, you know, new old four track. And it became just sort of like this incredible collaborator with me on these songs where, uh, you know, it was the first time I was ever writing something like with headphones on. And I was just hearing myself in real time exactly, you know, what was the songs are sort of unfolding. I was writing them as the record button was on. Um, so long story short. I ended up, you know, rather than having a band or something, I wrote all the parts for this record. And then my friend Brad Cook, who's a wonderful producer, is kind of the perfect, um, you know, companion for me to go into a studio and just recreate everything I had done on the four track. And Brad played bass. And then my friend James came in and did some percussion and my girlfriend sings some uh, some harmonies on it. But other than that, you know, I played everything. It's the first time I played drums on one of my albums. Yeah. Which I really didn't have the confidence to do. I'd done them on the demos and then Brad had to convince me in the studio that... I was good enough drummer to do it and I'm really glad he did. And, but yeah, so it's definitely a new record for me in that way. And, um, you know, I try to keep it as sparse as possible and the four track really helped me do that. And cause a big part of this record was I wanted to make something that sort of mimicked what I find beautiful about the sort of Midwestern middle American landscape, which is just its vast openness. And so I really wanted that to, to be represented on the record. You mentioned drums, and uh, this might be out of left field, but I wonder if you have any particular affinity for or connection to indigenous culture or Native American culture, I guess is what uh, you you might call it down there in the States. Um, because I'm listening, like when the song Brother Sister comes on, I'm thinking of that rhythm, that rhythm mm-hmm. and that we've kind of associated that kind of rhythm, uh, kind of a tom drum pattern with uh, indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that was... It also reminds me of like the Hank Williams song about Elijah, the wooden Indian. You know, mm-hmm. we, <laughs> I just wonder, like, do you have any particular connection to that history? And, um, and if so, is there, is there anything that you want to say about the, that particular rhythm? Like that, that feel for that song seems very traditional in a sense and sure. distinctive. Uh, can you speak to those things? Well, I would say I, that wasn't done consciously. So, you know, if you're hearing that, I think that's great. But, you know, I think that those sorts of rhythms and uh, that type of music is, is definitely just in the fabric of of everything, especially American music, in the same way that, you know, blues would be. And so that's definitely there. I also 
you know, I was watching a lot of Western films at the time and just kind of having them yeah. on in the background. So, you know, that's a weird thing. It's a blurry thing. It's I view it as an indigenous culture thing. Mm-hmm. It's also been a cowboy culture thing. Sure. So like and that I hate to get into this dynamic, but the whole cowboys in Indian history, it sort of has seeped into things like that. Like that is a signifier for both of those things. Absolutely. Uh, because of Western films and Western you know, whatever, whatever you, so that I, was the Western aesthetic, the cowboy aesthetic yeah. is very closely connected to the indigenous and native American aesthetic. So again, I don't think we are probably, uh, we don't have the time or maybe aren't equipped to unpack what all of that means, Sure, <laughs> but sure. I think that's fascinating. Like, yeah, it's both of those things, isn't it? That rhythm. Absolutely. And I, you know, where I grew up, it's, everything is a native name around here. You know, all the streets that I grew oh, okay. up on are, are native names. I went to Chisholm Trail Elementary and, you know, I grew up on Antioch Road and, you know, Kansas is a native word. And I mean, most of America is, is native words. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so that's, that's very deep in our culture, but uh, absolutely in this sort of kind of fucked up whitewashed way as well. Um, Co-opted, yeah. But yeah, cowboy culture and, and, and Native American culture, it's, it's everywhere here. And it's one of those things that yeah. growing up, you don't think that it's everywhere until you move away. And then you're like, actually, it's everywhere, you know, and like Gunsmoke was filmed in Dodge City, Kansas. And, you know, uh, Kansas City is littered with, uh, you know, Western apparel stores. And you don't quite yeah. notice how cowboy it, it all feels until you move away. And then, you know, it, it's it's a really fun thing for me if I have like a friend from California who's never been here before come visit or something like that. Because to them, they're, you know, it's just like, it's like another planet um, because of these things. Um, yeah. But it's definitely something that all of this is very ingrained in me just from childhood, just from just growing up here. You know, I, I wasn't even aware of it, but it, it certainly is ingrained in me. You seem like you're in a reflective mode uh, since moving back, I, I feel like. And as we're speaking, uh, it might be done by the time people hear this, actually. But you've been doing a thing where you've been playing each of your albums mm-hmm. uh, in these virtual live shows. I'm just curious about that decision, but I also, am I being too much of a podcast psychiatrist to suggest that uh, <laughs> in being reflective about your life and your childhood and being back home, you're in the zone of like reassessment or, or reflecting upon your working trajectory as well? I mean, not I've in- not heard of too many people saying, I'm going to play every one of my albums almost once a week on the internet (laughs) in lieu of touring this is what i'm doing like something's going on right you're in a absolutely kind of reflective mode absolutely and i yeah i I, 100 it's a very reflective mode i think something about being back here is you know when i was living in new york and i was living in los angeles i really it kind of went hand in hand with the music industry and 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 touring all the time you know i'd go out on tour and have these chaotic experiences but then i'd come back and have you know, arguably just as chaotic experiences back in those places, going out every night and going to shows with friends. And it's just kind of like that lifestyle never stopped when I was living there. But being here is like a, it's like a screeching halt and it's, it's way more domestic. And, you know, I, I'm able to own this house and it's more conducive to being creative, which is great, but it's definitely reflective because going out into the world and doing what I do and getting to come across all those, you know, wonderful characters that, you know, both living and dead, that I've, I've been able to, to come across and go to the corners of the world that I get to go perform in and do all those sorts of things seems so crazy. Then when you come back to the Midwest through the lens of the Midwest, you know, I'll be like sitting at a olive garden with, you know, my parents or something. And I'll be like my other life that is not this. And there's way more to the Midwest than sitting at olive garden. I'm I'm just, I'm using that as a stark example, but there's just, it really highlights, you know, this thing that I get to go do and how thankful I am for it. And, it, it really does make me reflective and this doing all my records in full has been a reflective time. And, you know, and I think we're all feeling reflective with this shutdown, you know, and I think it's an amazing time. Like you're lucky you did it when you did, right? Yeah. You're home, you're away from these probably most, well, I'm not sure what the, I'm sure it's not great in Kansas city either. I'm guessing, but like, yeah, these, these epicenters for the pandemic and whatnot. Like, yeah, but I mean, to be home is to feel safe. Yeah. A little bit. Like, and I was and, at the beginning and, of this thing. I was in Australia, actually, and we had a scare and we had to rush back um, oh. because of the shutdown. So it was, and I had been on tour, honestly, for like five years straight, basically, up until this shutdown. And I did a full European tour in January of this year and then did a full Australian thing. And then we, we, thought we were going to get stuck there. So we had to rush back. And I was so grateful to get home. Um, you know, I've never had that sort of fear of not thinking that I could come home. And this was at a point where the virus was so rare, but you know, it was, it was, no one knew anything about it. 
so it was yeah. such a scary moment and I was so glad to to get home and um that's just where I've been ever since well we're all glad you're home and we're all glad it's uh yielding this great work the, the new album is called uh, sundowners uh Kevin where would you like people to go uh to find out more about this record and to find out more about you on you know on the internet uh they can go to my web you know I got a website I got a dot com <laughs> kevinmorby.com basically Kevin Morby. is that you that's you in a nutshell that's that's me in a nutshell that's got every everywhere you could possibly want to go <laughs> okay and if we can go out on a song uh, from this record I'm wondering if you can pick one and also maybe uh, tell us why why you chose it you can go out on the last song provisions that's a song you know this record because I was I recorded this record last year and just kind of had it in my back pocket but I was going to be touring I was meant to be touring this whole year but when the lockdown went into effect, my song Provisions, I felt this song speaks so much to the current moment that I think we should release this record as soon as possible. So I think, you know, there's something relatable to this song, um, given where everyone's at right now. So we can go out on that. Okay. This is Kevin Morby with uh, Provisions from the excellent record Sundowner. Kevin, this was a real pleasure. I, I thank you for this. I hope we speak again soon and, and best of luck with everything going forward. You too, Vish. Thanks so much, man. It's an honor. Dead deer in the road up ahead Must be an omen From an hour ago a soul Must have been chosen In the day moves fast In the day moves slow Don't I know it And I never met a morning That I didn't like and I never met a night that I wouldn't try twice You should go before the dawn Cast no shadows But I'm already gone In mm. grab provisions There's nothing for a hundred miles Cast your vision on the dark road for a while. Storm is coming now, it's its inner cloud. And soon the sky will open up its big mouth. I feel it in my bones, I feel so alone. My heart's the guitar in my mouth, the piano. I have many teeth in many different keys Honey, if you're good, then don't do it for free Do what I have to do, say what I have to say Put a quarter in my jukebox, then be on your way And grab provisions, there's nothing for a hundred miles And cast your vision on a memory in her eyes on her wedding day Oh, love's a parade But don't just give it away Choose carefully Confetti in my hands Are you ready to be a man? Are you inside the kingdom Or just dead where you stand? And the tin cans drum on the pavement Somebody else, someone save us You were wishing well Oh, inside of hell And I'd stand over you And I'd laugh as it fell Wish you would come again As lovers or friends, I don't care But till then, grab provisions There's nothing for a hundred miles and cast your vision on a melody For a while 
Cast your vision on the dark road. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Oh, it was an immense pleasure to have Kevin Warby on the show. Kevin, thank you so much for making time to be on on this, the 572nd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and available everywhere podcasts are. It's on all of the podcast platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, anything you use, it should be there. If it's not, call me on the phone and I will then call customer service for whichever platform is giving you the business and I will give them the business and get this podcast on there but anyway it's on most of the things that are out there but if you can't find an episode that you're looking for because you heard about it and just everyone's always talking about it all the time you're like fine I'll check it out and then you go and it's not in any of the podcast feeds because they have certain limitations if you need to find that particular episode or if you want to sign up for my semi-regularly scheduled newsletter or learn just learn about me, you can do all of those things at my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, I suppose. You can also follow the show on Twitter, at vishcreative, or follow me directly, at vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. On top of uh, subscribing to the podcast or, or following it or liking it, I don't know what they all tell you to do, but if you can, as well as keeping tabs on the podcast by sort of signing up for it, so to speak, that helps. It, it helps make the podcast more prominent. Patreon, I mean, $6 or more a month uh, will get you exclusive content that I don't put anywhere else. That's what you get. You get the, you get the shoot. You're supporting the show out of the kindness of your heart, and you're getting a little something back, extra content. But you can really donate whatever you want, any amount. And like I said, it's flexible. You can switch it up. If you're not happy or, or not, well, you're going to be happy. Don't get mad at me. I didn't do anything. If you're just like, I can't afford this right now, or actually, I got a nice bonus. I can afford more. You can change it. All the information you need is at patreon.com slash creative control. So please go there and support the show. Speaking of supporting the show, thank you to live at MasseyHall.com. If you go to that website, you can watch beautifully captured concerts by great Canadian artists, and they support the show. Also, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton support the show. 
with uh, in-kind support, and I appreciate that. Uh, I love all of those places, and if you can hear me and are near any of them, go to them and tell me what you think. I think they're all great. Thanks as well to Jim Guthrie. He's uh, an old friend of mine. He loans me some music for the show, and you can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Kevin Morby. I hope you'll check out uh, some of the other episodes uh, behind this one and ahead of it. I hope you keep... uh, tabs on the show and uh and i hope you listen to sundowner it's a wonderful album as i said during the conversation so good luck to kevin and thank you good luck to you thank you for listening i will talk to you very soon bye for now ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.